Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you listening for the first time, my name's Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. I'm passionate about all things leadership and management. So passionate, in fact, that I decided to start a podcast about it. And here we are in season two and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Shelley Flett, who is the author of The Dynamic Leader, Become the Leader Others Are Inspired to Follow. Shelley is a business and leadership trainer and coach who works with leaders to maximize efficiency and build high-performance team cultures in organizations of any size. She's been doing this since 2015 after leaving a corporate career in customer service, operations, and banking. Shelley works with leaders and teams to increase their individual productivity, staff retention and engagement, customer satisfaction and advocacy for change. She does this with a key focus around building authentic relationships and establishing a high level of trust, generating respect by having challenging conversations, holding people accountable and the people they work with accountable, and empowering their staff to make decisions and drive results through influence instead of authority. Now during the course of the conversation we explore Shelley's book in great detail. I always start off by asking Shelley why did she decide to write this book? We speak about the spoken and unspoken problems that leaders face. We discuss the leadership ladder Shelley has developed to allow you to reach the level of being a dynamic leader. And I finish the interview by asking Shelley about the importance of holding yourself accountable and the need to celebrate success. So keep listening. And as always, really like to hear your thoughts about our interview with Shelley Flett, author of The Dynamic Leader, Become the Leader Others Are Inspired to Follow. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Welcome, Shelley, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to come out and hang out with me in Synergen HQ so that the listeners have a bit of an idea about who you are. Who is Shelley Flett? It's an interesting question, uh, who is Shelley Flett? Immediately, I want to go to what my role is professionally, but actually, I'm, a, um, I'm just a country girl. <clears throat> so... Um, Mum of three, got two boys and a girl, and passionate about leadership and wanting to make a difference in the world. Okay. Yeah. So when you say make a difference, yeah. uh, how do you mean? I would uh, love to think that the leaders of the future are unanimously spoken of as inspirational and helpful and compassionate and caring um, and still really um, inspiring for people to achieve and be their best but without the the negative things that sometimes go with leadership so in your experience i'm just going to go off go off topic already of our structure Obviously, if that's where you want to be, your experience is that that's maybe not where we are now as a, as a leadership state. I 
definitely think we're moving in the right direction. I don't think that that's where we are um, consistently across the board. Uh, and I and I think for me personally, that's definitely not where I came from. Okay. Yeah. So very, very different. I, I think that if we can um, uh, put aside the assumptions that different industries require different leadership and actually say, well, perhaps different industries have got away with different leadership for longer than others, uh, but that, you know, the needs and the what people actually want out of their leader uh, is consistent regardless of industry, um, that it's time to catch up. Okay. So we're here to talk about your book. Yes. We're here to talk about your book. Uh, the dynamic leader become the leader others are inspired to follow why did you decide to write it uh well i'd been running uh the dynamic leaders tutelage for three years which is a one-day leadership program and uh it was because it was one day i i didn't feel like i was sharing everything that I could about that and so I, I could have extended it out to two days or three days or, or made it a bigger program but I'm conscious that uh, many of the leaders who come to my programs find it hard to get out of the office for one day and so the book ended up being a good idea in terms of to supplement the program so either read the book before you come to the program or come to the program and then read the book or just read the book um, or just come to the program. So it gave people options if they wanted to go deeper. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I want to start the interview off with a, a bit of an excerpt, which I'm going to read uh, here. Some staff responded well to my style of leadership. Others, however, were completely put off and their performance deteriorated until they either left the team or left the organisation. I was always able to explain these excerpts away to my managers and to myself as being due to poor performance with a lack of engagement or due to those people not being the right fit to begin with. I never stopped to consider that part of the problem might be me. Feedback on my approach and style of leadership was never given, or at least I never heard it, and I was always rated really well for achieving goals and seen as a high performer in my broader team and across the organisation. I think a lot of leaders can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think... The, I think I had a very narrow perspective of what my role as a leader was. And and I do often wonder whether I was given feedback, but I was just so busy with all the other things that were going on. And I think I was in a little bit of survival mode and reacting constantly um, that I couldn't bring myself up above it all to go, maybe, maybe. Well, who's the common denominator here? <laughs> I was definitely the common denominator with um, a lot of things. In my early years, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's often the case, isn't it? When you first uh, you're first in your leadership role, you come to it with all the enthusiasm and excitement, and then very quickly you realise, oh, this is a this is a whole other game. It's not like being an employee. No, and the transition between individual contributor and leader is so great, and um, you we get when we when we become an individual contributor in any organisation, we're, we're supported so well most of the time. You know, you get induction training and then job training and then buddying and then, you know, you slowly get left out. And and then when you move into a leadership role, you, you get, um, you know, what I say, probably a bigger desk, maybe a, 
a box of business cards. I remember my first leadership role, I got a box of business cards and um, and got told how to run a few reports and that was really it. It wasn't how does my mindset need to change to go from controlling what I was in control of to influencing what other people were in control of. I just went from controlling what I did to trying to control what they did. Mm. Epic fail. <laughs> I'm sure we've all got some epic fails. <laughs> yeah. So I want to uh, I want to start digging deep yeah. into the book and I, I sort of it was an interesting approach that I, that I, as I started to read it, and uh, I really sort of picked up on a, a couple of key things in chapter one, where which you've called spoken problems. Mm-hmm. And whilst there's a lot of spoken problems, there's three in particular that I want to explore with you, and it's mm-hmm. this idea that talent is a spoken problem, staff engagement is a spoken problem, and resistance to change. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about that. I think the um problems are big picture enough that other people can relate to that and go yep that's that's an issue that i um, experience as well it must be the industry Uh, and i think when enough people agree that they oh i also have an issue with that that it becomes a more of a global issue Um, and the challenge with that is that there's the responsibility goes out of yourself. So what could I actually do to change talent if talent's an issue more broadly? Um, well, nothing. I just have to wait for the industry. So almost, it's almost a leave pass in a way with the spoken problems um, is that you can explain it away because of something else. So it really puts you in the passenger seat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you also talk about these idea of these unspoken problems. Mm. And there was one of those that really resonated with me, which is uh, not having the right training to lead. Because I reflect back on my first leadership role and uh, it was zero training. Yeah. It was, yeah, one there, boss of the team used to be part of. Yes. Off you go, do your work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so why, why do you think this, this, this occurs? How can organisations continue to make this same mistake of, not training their people well enough. Oh, look, I think uh, I think that there's got there needs to be a solution to it. I think that um, if there was enough leaders starting in an organisation at the same time, or enough people being promoted into leadership at the same time, you could absolutely build a business case around training. But as it stands, one-on-one training with a leader, and this, you know, when you're talking about leadership training, I, I run a one-day program. That's a Kickstarter. That's not even that's just the tip of the iceberg. So there's a lot of work that needs to go on after that. And when you think about the leader of those leaders, they have less time than the leader themselves in a lot of instances. And so I think it's well intended. I think it's poorly executed in a lot of places. And I think that um, I think that leaders worry that they should just be expected to pick it up that it's something that oh I'll I'll get there and I think for a lot of leaders who've been there and done that they do get there eventually I know I got there I'm sure you got there as well Um, but did it have to be so hard (laughs) (laughs) well that's the thing isn't it 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 is hard it is hard if you're honest with yourself yeah and I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of new leaders, they, 
they go into meetings with other leaders and they see this confidence and this um, you know sense of control that other leaders have had that they've worked really hard to build and potentially there's not enough vulnerability in leadership circles to actually this is a tough gig this is it's lonely I'm, I'm no longer part of the team I'm now leading the team I don't know who I can talk to I, I don't know what that means when I do talk to people um, and so there's not enough conversation I want I want this unspoken to become a spoken yeah so I might move it into the into the section ahead in my next revision maybe <laughs> 10 years time okay <laughs> so I want to uh Talk to you about the Eisenhower grid. Yeah, it's an important matrix. Yes. So uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that, and I don't know whether I'm being controversial or not, Stephen Covey's a thief. I reckon he's stolen it. <laughs> and uh, everyone knows uh, Covey's uh, time management matrix. Not a lot of people know about the Eisenhower grid. So no. talk to us a little bit about that. So it, was, it came from Dwight Eisenhower, who was the 34th president of the United States, and he was an ex-Marine, I think, um, and, and also then ran the country. And so what he looked at is the amount of time that he had in the day and, and then all of the decisions that he had to make and um, decided to break his focus down into what's important and what's urgent. And so I find that this matrix is really relevant to leaders in that um, I think most leaders could attest to, I've got more things on my to-do list than what there are hours in the day. And every day my list gets longer. And, you know, so what is it that I focus on and what do I um, delegate or delete? And so um, the idea is that you spend uh, a lot of time in doing the things that need to be done so a lot of that is reacting but it's two things that are urgent and important Um, but i think the important um, step after that is to then move across to it might be low urgency but it's still high importance and it still needs to be done so they're things that are strategically aligned to wherever your business is wanting to go um, and harder to Execute, particularly when you've spent all morning doing the urgent things, um, or you know, consider a part of your day doing the urgent things. Uh, once they're done, though, you have achieved so much more than the things that you did earlier in the day. And the more you spend on doing the important things, the less time, or the less, um, the lower amount of urgency there is around them because you're getting to them before they become a problem. You also speak about the, the four stages of learning. Yes. It's, uh, it's one of my personal favourites. And I'd like it if you could do two things. Explain it to, to the listeners yeah. uh, what the four stages are. But also then follow that up with how can they apply that to their leadership? So how can they find out where they are in certain areas on those four stages of learning? Good question. So the four stages of learning, um, we start with unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know. At the very other end, the fourth stage, it is um, unconscious competence, which is we do know. Well, we don't know what we do know. 
And so I think at both of those stages, you're not going to know because you don't know. So that's pretty um, easy to identify. So if you don't know, then you're probably either unconsciously incompetent or unconsciously competent. <laughs> so, so in between that and, you know, not knowing what you don't know, um, when you don't know what you don't know, it doesn't take any energy. It's only when someone says to you, uh, hey, did you know this and you, you should be doing this, that you go, oh, first of all, I didn't know that that was a thing and second of all, now I'm feeling the energy around the pressure that I need to know and so um, the effort increases. So you move from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. So now, oh gosh, I do know what I don't know how am I going to achieve this? What do I do? And there's a there's a, a point there where you either commit to learning that thing that you should be learning or you find reasons why you don't need to learn it or know it and you avoid. And it's only those that have a compelling enough why, so a compelling enough reason to continue through to conscious competence that will actually uh, persevere long enough to do that. Um, and I use the analogy of you know drive, learning to drive a car is it's not driving a car that is the reason people want to learn to drive a car. It's what driving a car actually means to people who want to drive a car. So independence, freedom, uh, accessibility. So they're all things that we're um, intrinsically motivated by. And that will go, okay, well, in order to get my freedom or in order to build my confidence, I need to go through this stage, which is really hard. And so then it's repetition. So you just do it over and over and over and over and trust that it will get easier. And then over time you go, okay, that is getting easier. And eventually you forget that it was ever hard in the first place and it becomes unconscious. I think... In terms of leadership, I see leaders who are, um, I like the people. It's not always about the results. And then the other side, which is, uh, it's about delivering the results. It's about the task. I'm not very good with people. And so their um, learning curve is, and becoming consciously aware about their incompetence around people uh, is really important there's got to be a reason for them to continue to persevere with getting it, getting their relationships right and investing in their people. Otherwise they'll find reason. And the spoken problems are really good examples of reasons why they would just give up on that. You know, I buy them lunch once a, once a month or I take, I give them movie tickets and gift vouchers and things. So I don't know what their problem is. You know, that's, I did relationships. You go, yes, you're still incompetent at that point. So keep persevering. You're, you're heading in the right direction, but why do you want to be good at relationships in the first place? So I think exploring why relationships are really important to leaders um, needs to be addressed before they actually um, embark on the learning journey. Okay. Yeah. And so you've got a, uh, a leadership ladder. I do. You do. Everybody needs a ladder. Everyone needs a ladder. <laughs> so are you able to uh, walk the listeners through your ladder and the sort of give a bit of a high level 
yes. of each of the, the five levels, please. Yeah, absolutely. So unlike a conventional ladder, or actually it might be like a conventional ladder. You know when you walk a ladder, you actually you never stand on the bottom rung? Yeah, no. Right. So actually this is really like a ladder then. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you start the ladder on the second step, which is um, around being responsive. So leaders, when they start, it is, all right, what do I need to do? And particularly if they've come from an individual contributor position, is they're waiting for someone or something to guide their, their actions and where they go next. And so they come in that responsive level. Um, they are working a lot on what's urgent, not a, not a great deal on what's um, important and strategically aligned. Uh, and then over time, uh, if they don't move off that second run, rung, they either have the choice to go up or go down. And so those that go down will withdraw and become a dysfunctional leader. So I call these leaders seat warmers. So they're people who come in, do their job, but it's the bare minimum, and then they leave. Their team don't really feel that engaged, but they're not disengaged. They, It's just a very neutral kind of place, very little progression. Um, and so at what's generally happened at one stage is that they have burnt out or they've just res- they've responded to the point of exhaustion they've compromised you know their perhaps their health and well-being and things outside of work and they've just said you know what I'm I'm not giving my everything to the organization anymore and so then they become dysfunctional but the other uh, way is to step up onto the next run and that's really around looking at um, who can I start to work with? Who can I? Who can help me? Who can help me get some rhythm? I need to uh, build rhythm into my day so that I know what I'm focusing on, so that I know what's uh, not urgent and not important in terms of the Eisenhower matrix, and I can be comfortable not doing that. Even if someone says to me, "You should be doing that," I, I can feel comfort in knowing that's not where I need to spend my time. And so they move up into that collaborative space where they can start to reach out to other people and get support. Um, Once they do that, once they're collaborating and they're getting everyone involved and they're taking on different perspectives, that's where they move into that influential um, phase. And that is leaders can empower their people and they can guide them and ask questions, but they're not holding on so tightly to how they want things done. Very focused on what are the what's the end goal what's the objective we need to achieve but how you get there I'm, I'm actually leaving that up to you um, so very much around empowerment and then the the top rung of the ladder is about becoming dynamic and that is I'm invested in the organization and I'm invested in the people and I'm also very aware that I'm I'm not the biggest player in that, that I'm the facilitator and that I'm the one that enables and empowers everyone else. Um, and then really looking at well, what's next for me as the leader. So I think progression is the next step for them is to move out and start that journey again. Okay. Yeah. In all the work that you've done on this model and all the workshops uh, that you've delivered this model with, are you getting a sense of where are you getting any insights into you know that the majority of leaders are in a certain stage or yeah. where do they tend to fall? So a lot of work that I do is at team leader and then the next level manager level, uh, and they are bet- majority hover between responsive and collaborative. Okay. With 
most saying, yeah, I can empower. I can empower when things are going well. Or, yeah, I, I, I know what my intention is or I've got the strategy when things are going well. I think the key to this is if that's not your, if that's not your base point, like if that's not where you um, start from, then you're not at that level. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in Chapter 5, you start talking about this idea of an overarching theme, which is uh, communication. And why, I want to ask you, why is this such a, a big thing for leaders? Because my experience is that organisations generally engage us for one of two main reasons. They need to improve their communication or they need to improve their ability to manage performance. So in your experience, why, why is communication such a hot topic for leaders? Um, so I take the position of uh, treating people the way that they want to be treated instead of the way that you want to be treated. Um, I certainly found in my own leadership journey that treating others the way that I want to be wanted to be treated um, led them to perceiving that I was a bully and that I was intimidating, um, and that definitely wasn't my intention, but it was how I came across. So communication... For me, I, I realised um, I realised quite soon after I became a leader that communication wasn't just a you say what you thought and the clearer you say it, the better it will be received. There was all these other nuances around, you know, your tone and is it the right time and um, are you telling versus are you asking? And, and so uh, when I started to play around with my communication I started to see a completely different response I found that as I adjusted my communication and adapted the relationships that I have with people strengthened and I wasn't so scary to talk to <laughs> you, you could be scary to talk to well because I've learned communication so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'm a I'm a big fan of frameworks, of structure, of a system, and I really like uh, the way you have put together this idea of clarifying your message, because I think it gives people a really, really clear process to follow. So you're able to step the listeners through how they can clarify their message. Yeah, and this is specific to written communication, uh, which, I think where our inboxes are flooded with and um, not just our inboxes but Messenger and WhatsApp and Skype and all of those other intermediaries. So this is specific to emailing um, and I think that if we can, I think this comes down to effort. So make it, if we can make it easy for people to absorb what we want to say and our message, then they are more likely to take that on whatever it is we're saying. Uh, what I see uh, often is leaders will send out an email and then wipe their hands. You know, they'll be like, I sent the email, my that's my job done. I'm no longer responsible for that. The reality is you are responsible for the communication, both what you sent as well as what was received at the other end. And often that's not the same thing. Often the impact that your message has is quite different to what you intended. Um, and so clarifying your message is really about a couple of things. So getting the subject right. What is it that you actually want to communicate to your people? Um, and making the 
subject appropriate to the message. And that sounds like a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised at how many emails. If you're sending an email with no subject line, that would be the first place I would start is just add a subject line. Um, <clears throat> your message is uh, needs to be clear and really one message per email. So avoid saying, oh, and by the way, about that other thing we were dealing with, here's the response. It makes it really hard to go back to those things and you're assuming that when someone reads an email that they're absorbing everything that you've said and they'll remember it in the future, which they're unlikely to. And I think that's the um, value of uh, emails is that you can go back to them at a later stage. But if their response is embedded in another one, it's almost impossible to find. Um, then keeping in mind, you know, what's your objective? What do I actually want to get out of this? Um, I was given some advice by a, a previous leader of mine who said, don't ever forward some, an email to your people with just FYI. <laughs> if you're going to forward an email as for your information, add value to it. Add value to it or don't do it because you end up just becoming that admin person. Because as a leader, it's, you know, adding insight to that. And, um, and so I think that understanding what your objective is and adding value is really important. Language, keep it year nine. So run it by your kids or some high schoolers if you're not really sure. If you if they understand your, your message and what you're talking about, then you've nailed it. Otherwise, go back, um, remove the jargon, um, any acronyms, etc. People might not understand it. I um, mean, consider your audience. So who is it that I'm talking to and am I giving them the information that they need to know or am I overloading it with other things that are not, not necessary um, for the purpose of validating what I know myself. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know, um, keep it friendly, make it easy to read, don't make it too hard and, and convoluted. So some basics, some basics there. Um, and it's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I find that, uh, email is still the predominant way that people are communicating particularly with the, the client base that we're dealing with and it's on one hand people know that in some cases it's not the best way to communicate a particular situation or event but it's I think it's good for people to have a particular frame mm. to follow to make sure that when they are using it mm. uh, that they're, they're, they're hitting the mark I also really like the very uh, straightforward framework that you put in when you're having the, a one-to-one -one mm. conversation. And I thought, you know, th this could be really useful because I find that the leaders we work with, they respond really well when they're, they're given a framework to operate within. And I think this one uh, for the one-to-one -one conversations uh, is really good. So can you share what it is? Yeah, so when I ask, and I love asking this question, um, when you have a one-on-one -on -one with your direct report, who does most of the talking? And unanimously, every leader sticks up their hand. And it's very rare that um, there's a leader that does less talking than what the staff member does. And so the first thing I would say about one-on-ones is do 20% of the talking. And of that 20%, make 19% questions, just ask questions. Um, allow the uh, direct report to run the meeting, allow them to guide the conversation 
and ask some questions on things that you're curious about. So come come at the conversation from a position of curiosity. And if the conversation goes off on a different tangent, then let it because it obviously needs to be said. Uh, the other thing that I say about one-on-one conversations is they should be held every month and they should be held for an hour. So I get people saying, well, I have weekly one-on-ones that go for 15 minutes. I mean, that's that's not really a one-on-one. That's probably a, an update or a check-in on how they're doing from their work perspective. So understanding that the purpose of a one-on-one is for a leader to invest in their people and for people to feel like they someone cares and that they matter in some way to the organization when someone believes their um, leader cares about them then they will invest and their performance will increase and not only that leaders will um, understand better what motivates those people so they'll understand what intrinsically they're motivated by and also what they need extrinsically so perhaps they have a young family that they need to work around and how can they support them to do that um, and so the reason that it that I say it's got to be 60 minutes is that the first 20 to 30 minutes are surface level conversations so um, how is how did your performance go what did you do well what didn't you do well what else the following 30 minutes allow you to go then deeper so what's really going on how are things in your life what are the challenges that you're facing so it's after the, um, I guess, the, the high-level points are covered. And then you just, you can go wherever the conversation goes and you find out so much more about your people when you give them the space to just talk. Um, I remember uh, one of my leaders who used to just sit there in my one-on-one conversations and I would talk for probably 55 minutes uninterrupted about all of the things that were wrong and what was going on and then what I made that mean and then I'd come to solutions from a problem that I'd asked earlier and he just let me talk and talk and talk and then at the end I'm like okay I think I'm done and then he would ask me some questions or tell me if there was anything that he needed from me and I always walked out of those conversations feeling cleansed (laughs) (laughs) like wow, that was really nice. I really needed, I just needed someone to listen. I, I didn't really need anyone to come in, but what he, he gave me the space to work out solutions to my own problems, which I think improved my ability as a leadership, as, as a leader. So you talk about this idea of underpinning theme being time. Yeah. Time is something I think which a lot of leaders are struggling with at the moment in that they're expecting a lot more is expected of them and the resources they're given are actually less. So what can leaders do in terms of thinking about time? How can they manage their time? In a nutshell, do different, don't do more. Though I often will say to you know leaders that I'm working with, I don't want you to do more. I don't want you to add this to your list. And I think that uh, as leaders, we can take on more and more and more without looking at, okay, well, if I were to do that, how might I do that within the realms of all the other things that I'm doing right now? And so I think that we could use our time better. 
I also think in relation to the Eisenhower matrix is that there are time, there's probably too much time we spend watching cat videos on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, guilty. (laughs) That thing, the the thing that is, it it looks like it should be done and it, it makes us feel like we've invested the time, but really if we were to ask ourselves, what did you actually achieve by doing that? Uh, I don't think you could come up with something that would align to the purpose of your role. So people that um, you know, need their emails to be uh, put, in, put neatly into different folders and, I don't know, doing things with those well-intended, oh, that's really good information, I must, I must type that up somewhere else to then do something else with it. Uh, at the end of the day, it's what's, for what purpose are you doing that? Um, a lot of the time it is, well, it wouldn't be nice to have, but it's not essential, so let it go. So letting go of the things that, anything that's been on your to-do list for three months or more, cut it, either do it or cut it. So I was talking to someone the other day and I had you know going to the dentist on my list. <laughs> so I either cut it or just do it. And so I, I booked an appointment. And that's all I needed. It was just a really quick phone call, but it was something that I'd been putting off for so long. Uh, and so get it off your to-do list because I think I think to-do lists are energy consuming just by being there. And I think that it ends up being a dumping ground for you know the time, this utopia where nothing's coming in and we've got time on our hands. I don't know about anyone else, but when I've got time on my hands, I'm resting or I'm on my dirt bike or like I'm not thinking about that kind of stuff at all so i think just being more aware of where of where you're spending your time and using it wisely i particularly like when with to-do lists when people do something which isn't on their to-do lists but then they write it back onto their to-do lists so they can put a cross through it or ticket <laughs> and yeah if we spent the same amount of energy doing something that did align to where we're wanting to go in life, it would be more than just the satisfaction of crossing up it off. It would be, I can actually have a break this weekend or I don't have to pick up my laptop, um, you know, in the evening when the kids go to bed or when I'm on my own, you know. Just working working smart. Do, do different, not more. Yeah, that's right. So there's a lot of talk about mindsets uh, around the traps at the moment, but I particularly liked yours because it was a little different yeah so you're able to talk to the listeners around the idea of a reasons mindset versus a results mindset yes so i think by default we learn to take on a reasons mindset in my house um we have a no blame policy so we don't blame in this house is what i will say to my children Uh, and so I think automatically when something goes wrong, we we look for someone or something to put the responsibility on. And I think we get away with doing that for most of our lives. Um, And I think that some people remain in that reasons mindset where nothing is ever their responsibility, nothing is ever their fault. Um, And they can explain it away really well and be very compelling, very convincing about it. But the thing is, they don't they generally don't move forward they generally are sort of stuck in the same position and often go backwards over time rather than experimenting and stepping outside of their comfort zone 
they shut down and and they just don't take any responsibility. So I think there's different levels of reasons mindset. I think some of us dip into a reasons mindset. Um, once a quarter when I'm required to lodge my bass and reconcile all my accounts, I'm 100% in reasons. Like, why is it going to be so hard? Why, why doesn't this work properly? This shouldn't be someone else is responsible for this. I'm going to call QuickBooks or <laughs> going to complain to the ATO. Yes, yes. Um, but I'm very conscious that I step into reasons. The, the flip side is the results mindset. So those are the results mindset. Acknowledge that whatever happens to them or wherever they are in their life right now is because of either direct or indirect choices that they have made to, to get them there. And I think uh, the key with mindset is acknowledging that there's choice to it. And so... Um, you know, to, to my point around taking a reasons mindset when I when it, when it comes time to do bass, it's, well, you've got a choice. You could hire someone else to do that, um, but then there's there's a risk. Or you could just, you could learn to do it effectively, take the time that it needs to figure out how all these things work and then get it done, figure out a way to do it properly. So it's what lessons can I take in order to, change the way that things are done in the future and reflect on how I've approached something and how I might do that differently. And so whenever I'm coaching anyone, um, I always start with where's your mindset at? Are you, are you reasons? Are you results? And if you are more inclined to gravitate to reasons mindset, know that I will help you come across to results. And I think as leaders, we can allow our staff to sit in reasons and then we try to com- overcompensate for all these things. Oh, so you're not feeling engaged? Okay, I'm going to go away and I'm going to do something about your engagement versus, okay, so what would what does engagement look like for you? What might you be able to do to further engage? Um, if someone's not communicating, you didn't tell me that. Okay, so at what point did you consider asking? where's the responsibility that you take in this? And so I think there's always, and that changes the conversation then. So you also, uh, you you write about this idea that there's three core components in becoming a dynamic leader. And it was interesting when I read this, I thought, oh, I wonder where I fit. So are you able to uh, introduce your listeners to your three components and probably give a bit of insight to why they're so important? Yeah, so the three components are investing in relationships, inspiring respect and influencing results. And I think naturally as leaders, and I uh, mentioned this a little bit earlier, is uh, as people we're more inclined to either focus on the people, the relationship, or we're more focused to um, focus on results or the task. And so when we move into a leadership role and we understand that there's an importance for both, we'll always start from the position that we're most comfortable at. And without the right insights, awareness and um, techniques to actually get across to the other side, we end up just doing this um, bit like a pendulum swinging. So I'm really good at tasks, so my default is let's get things done, let's put timelines in, let's make sure everyone's clear on their objectives, and then I'll do relationships. So I'll swing over to relationships and, again, buy them lunch or 
Um, let's let's have an event. Let's run a team meeting, shall we? Or let's have a one-on-one. Um, but it's not consistent and it's not regular. And so staff get a bit of a taste of something that they go, oh, I kind of like this, but I'm not really sure I, I trust Shelley because this doesn't last. And so we then will swing back. And it's the same with... Um, with both investing in relationships and influencing results. And so the the key is to gain the respect of your people, it's about consistently balancing relationships with results. And it's through respectful conversations, listening and asking people what they think about certain things that helps them to um, find that balance and get that right. And you also talk about the idea that there's three levels of integration if you really want to sort of uh, focus in on these components. So what are the three levels of integration? So the first is say. So what are you saying? Uh, what are you sharing with your people? Um, what's being what's being said about you? Um, then, then is do. The second level is do. So it's fine to say what you expect of your people if that's different to what you're doing, then uh, you really compromise integrity around that. And so people will start to, they won't trust you if you're saying one thing and, and doing something else. Um, and then the third level is B, so that's um, very cultural. So you can influence what you say and you can influence what you do. Um, the B is just who you become once you're doing all of that. Okay. So I'm personally a, a big believer that relationships are a key yes. to leadership success. And uh, in chapter eight, you talk about the need to invest in relationships. So if people are not sure how to do it, where do they start? That's a really good question. So like you would outside of work, I think I would say to that, I think um, how do you develop relationships outside of work? And, and start with that. So um, small talk, get better at small talk. I, I can talk to anyone about anything and I can keep the conversation going because I've practiced. And also I'm a little bit curious on um, what's going on in the media. So I don't watch a great deal of news um, and I don't, I don't read a lot of newspapers, but I capture headlines. And so it's enough for me to be aware of what's going on so that if a conversation comes up that I can engage in that conversation um, and and listen. And I think, um, you know, the beginning of any relationship is, is the initial conversation. So start having conversations, but genuine conversations. So not conversations for the sake of building a relationship, but conversations because you actually care about the other person and you're interested in what they have to say. And I think that's that's the key difference. So get so so for any introverts out there, just get talking, get talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for extroverts, I think that comes naturally anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's easy said than done for some. That's Correct. for sure. Yeah. I mean, some people just have that natural ability just to talk effortlessly, whereas other people, me and myself included, need to think about it. Would uh, probably consider myself more of a plotter than just a natural, yeah, a natural talker. My um, hypothesis on that is if if you practiced, so with repetition comes um, excellence. Yep. 
Yeah. And so if you were doing it all the time and constantly and making that effort, but again, in terms of the learning journey we go on, if you don't have a reason, if you don't have a compelling enough why to actually do that, then everything will be hard and you won't probably won't ever be good at it. Yeah, one of the one of the things I often talk about is that repetition is the mother of skill. I like that. So the more you do it, the better you'll get. Yeah. As part of this idea of a relationship, you also talk about the idea of authenticity. Mm. And what I see uh, in the circles I move is that more and more people are trying to gauge if someone's authentic or not. Mm. I think a number of years ago that wouldn't have been sort of on people's radar as much, but right now people say, well, is this person legit? Is this really who they are? Yeah. So where do we start with making sure that we are always authentic and that we're using that as a way to continue to build our leadership? I think it's I think it's a, a journey that starts with yourself and a little bit of um, self-reflection and um, figuring out who you actually were. When I left the corporate world, I really struggled with like, who am I now that I don't identify with a banker? You know, um, I used to be able to say where I worked and everyone just got it. So um, I think it, it was really around, well, am I am I a country girl? Am I the girl that didn't do maths in year 12? Am I the one that didn't go to university? Like, who am I? And so, um, and then being able to share that with people. So being okay with, you, you might judge me based on what I'm sharing with you, but I'm being authentic and so I may not be that confident with it in the beginning, but more people will connect with that than will judge you for it. And I think, again, repetition over time and just sharing who you are um, in a unique way, getting it back. Like I've, I've seen my, my kids go from being these little unique individuals to being these sometimes frustrating school children <laughs> who are conforming and they'll say things and I'm thinking, that who said that? That doesn't sound like you. So who have you... And my question is, you know, interrogation ensues. Who have you been talking to? Where does that come from? Who said that? And, and <laughs> throughout the interrogation, I learned that it's something that someone else has said and that they've then taken that on but often it's lacked the context and so what they've got is a a bit of a confused idea of what reality is so it's really just being able to um, peel it back and go what what matters to you what matters to you what do you care about if there was no one else around who are you as a person and then gradually bring that into the workplace I'm not saying all at once it's it's a gradual process Yeah. yeah I'd imagine that it's very much linked to people's uh, self-confidence to be authentic, to put it all out there. I mean, uh, I see it on LinkedIn all the time, people saying, this is my first LinkedIn video. It's just, it's an interesting thing and people almost put it in there to stop the people judging them. And I think that then you see them as they post more and more, they get more and more confidence. So yeah. How do we work towards building up people's confidence so that they can be authentically themselves? 
So I like the metaphor of, um, so I ride motorbikes and when I first started riding my road bike, I had a, a big L on the back for learner. And what that entitled, or what that gave me is um, the ability, it gave me confidence to be a bit clumsy, to be in that learning space and for other people to know she's a learner. Well, a lot of the time I thought I was a he, but this <laughs> motorcyclist is a learner. So uh, people are a lot more forgiving when you've got that L on. It was interesting that when I took the L off, um, that how I experienced traffic was a lot different. Wow. And so I think that if you take that approach to leadership is let people know you're in the learning I've got my L's on right now. And I think that, you know, people saying this is my first LinkedIn video is the I've got my learners, I'm on my learners right now. So be patient with me as I as I fumble through things. Um, I think it helps. I think it helps to know that someone's on their learners. Yeah. That's interesting. You, you remind me of something that uh, someone once said to me and then the, through one of the episodes of the podcast and they uh, they work all around the world. And, and his view was that if you can make it as a leader in Australia, you can make it as a leader anywhere because the Australian workforce view you as you better prove to me that you're a good leader. Whereas in other countries and cultures, it's, oh, you're in a leadership position, therefore you must be good. Yeah. And I thought it was a really interesting thing to consider that if you can make it here, you've got it anywhere else. Yeah. And, and I think to, it's interesting um, when I was working in um, a contact centre who had an offshore team in Manila, one of the biggest challenges that the uh, operators in Manila had was with Australians because we imply a lot and we don't often give. And so what they said is that when they deal with Americans, Americans will tell them how they want them to solve their problem, whereas Australians will say, well, what are you going to do for me? <laughs> and then I say, well, we can do this. And then we go, well, that's not good enough. What else? <laughs> not happy with that. But we don't give any guidance. And yeah. so I agree with that. I think that um, it's very easy to, um, you know, stand in the stalls and tell players how to play and tell them what they're doing wrong. But, well, what would you do? Yeah. yeah. Give, give me some way forward. I, th I think you're right. I think that if you can make it as a leader in Australia, if you <laughs> anywhere else. Love it. This next question I have is really relevant because I think it was yesterday I was, uh, I was on LinkedIn as I often am and someone had made a comment about someone else's post, which I'd commented on in a positive and this other person commented on in a negative. And it's about this idea of team building and strategy days. I think personally the, these um, things can be useful if they're done the right way. Well, what are your views on team building and strategy days? Well, given I facilitate a lot of team building <laughs> and strategy days, I think they're valuable. <laughs> extremely valuable. They are extremely valuable. And even as a participant who went to team building and strategy days, I absolutely saw value in the day and, and what you um, learn and where you are focusing and it was it was really nice like it actually felt really good it was what happened after that that was underwhelming a lot of the time 
Yeah. And so often I would, oh, this happened countless times. In fact, most of the uh, offsites and strategy days that I've attended where we, where everyone agrees to, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do that and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and, and we're so excited and then we get back to work and, and we go, where, where, what did we talk, what was those things that we talked about yesterday and where are those flip charts and all those brainstorming notes that we took and and then what are we going to do and then maybe something happens in the beginning and then then it's deprioritized and then and then it's forgotten about and then you're left going what was the point of that yeah and often it is um more disengaging to do an activity like that than to not do one at all yeah. because it's like you're you've opened up the treasure chest and gone look at all of the amazing things you can have and we're going to close the lid and we're going to put it away we're going to actually drop it to the bottom of the ocean yeah. <laughs> uh, i think you're right it's the follow-up yeah which is the key yeah it's a follow-up which is the key and so when i'm running um when i'm running strategy days and, and team building things it is um if you're not going to actually take actions from this, then what are you going to do differently and actually make note of how you're going to do things differently within your own role and by you have control over that or where there is someone that's taking action is there's one owner and that one owner has the responsibility for making sure it works. Yeah. And, then, and then I think it, it has a better chance of success. So this part of the book, you got me feeling guilty. You got me feeling guilty. And it was around this idea of focusing on results and ignoring my team. Yeah. And as I was reading this, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I may have uh, slipped a little into, into that category. So as much for me as for anyone else, how, we, how can we make sure that we're not focusing just on results, but we're not ignoring our team, that we're... Because for me, uh, we're going to grow to nine people in three weeks and I'm very conscious new people coming into the business mm. uh, that I don't just want to, I, they start off with all my attention and then that, that wave is and I'm just all about the result. Mm. So what lessons have you got for me and the listeners? <laughs> well, I think first to that point is uh, I think you've got to start with what you can sustain. So... If you're giving someone all of your attention in the beginning, you're setting yourself up for failure early on. So um, what's sustainable? Um, I could I could say, uh, you know, you've just got to care more about people. But coming from a task-focused person that I am, I would say to other task-focused people, make people a task. And so that might sound a little bit cold. And to those that are people-focused, go, Oh, I can't believe she just said that. But for those who are task-focused, I, I think you'll resonate with me. And so the first thing I would do is get your calendar out and schedule in monthly one-on-one -on -one conversations with your people every month and put it as a recurring and then make sure that you don't book anything over that. And then over the top of that, I would say schedule team meetings and in those one-on-one -on -one conversation invites and the team meeting invites, be really clear about what you want to get out of that. 
and that it is around the people. Make those around the people. And then delegate the, you know, morning teas and all the fun stuff to someone who actually enjoys it. Enjoys doing it. So don't force yourself. I I have no doubt that task-focused people care about people. I care about people. Um, so they just don't always happen to be my first priority. So make them – either make them your first priority by putting tasks in your calendar or give that responsibility to someone else who enjoys it. Talk about inspiring respect. Why is respect so important for leadership? Because um, I think you can like someone and uh, understand who they are as people without respecting them as leaders. And I think that if you don't have respect, if you don't have respect, I think things are not always said. I think there's more elephants in rooms where there's lack of respect than there are without and if we can learn to respect each other, so respect is also not one way. So it's not you need to respect me because I'm your leader. Um, it's we need to develop mutual respect for each other. And in order to develop a mutual respect for each other, I need to know you and I need to have some idea of what, uh, motivates you. I also need to have some idea about your values and not stepping on those. Because I think when when we feel disrespected, I think is one when one of our values is violated and that we don't necessarily uh, we're not consciously aware of that at the time. We just feel this sense of that was wrong and that doesn't feel right and that must mean that there's a lack of respect. So I think it's respect is really important because it, it's a two-way thing and you either start with it and it deteriorates or you start with nothing and it builds up. But in both instances, you've got to work for it. I really liked your model for changing your thinking. I thought this was a, a really uh, practical way for people to step outside their own way of viewing things. So you're able to step them through the five questions which you uh, suggest they should ask. This is, and this is something that I, I do with a lot of um, the leaders that I work with, is when they are, when they're potentially engaging with their people in drama, am I allowed to say that? Oh, you can say whatever you like here. We'll, we, <laughs> I, I don't mind what gets said. <laughs> plenty of drama going on so um, when leaders engage in drama I think that they compromise I actually think that that compromises a bit of respect from other people but you want to be able to be there for your people so you want to be seen to be um, nurturing and caring and supportive while not engaging in their issues or their problems and so um, one of the um, some of the questions that I ask is what happened so what happened specifically that is not Julian doesn't like me because he didn't look at me when I walked in the door because you're assuming that because you didn't walk look at me when you walked through the door that you don't like me. So what happened is actually just the objective 
information. So Julian walked through the door and he didn't look at me. End of story. Um, and then the follow-up question to that is, so what are you making that mean? And then I can say, well, I'm making it mean that he doesn't like me. Okay, great. So then the third question is, so what else could that mean? And most people will pause here and look for a way out, particularly if they're reasons. So those that are results will probably look at other things, but you'll find a little bit of resistance here for those that are in reasons because they so desperately want someone to believe that Julian doesn't like them. Um, and so you might you might help them. So what else could that mean? Or it could have meant that he had dirt in his eyes. Um, it could have meant that he um, wasn't wearing his contacts and couldn't see me. Um, it could, and at this at this question, I I say this is the one where you spend the most time. Um, he didn't look at me because he eaten some really bad food the night before and he wasn't really sure what his stomach was going to do. So he was just, <laughs> he didn't want to look at anyone, you know. And so you make a little bit of, you bring some lightness to it so that you reduce the emotion that's around that. Um, and then the fourth question is, um, so why are you choosing to make it mean that he doesn't like you, for instance? And that comes down to, well, it always happens. It always gets to a stage in a relationship where people don't like me. And so it's, sometimes it's around self-sabotage. Other time it is, well, nobody ever thinks, nobody ever likes me. And so sometimes that might be around confidence. And then the final question is, well, what can you do with that information? What can you do now? And what you'd be working on is around your strategy to self-sabotage or the um, the need to build more confidence within yourself. So it gets away from what Julian did and comes back to well, what can Shelley work on within herself that actually won't matter who walks through the door and doesn't look at her. So it changes the focus. It's a, it's a pretty powerful uh, little framework there. Yeah. I, mean, I think you could, I can certainly see that being applied to a lot of people that I've come across uh, in different situations. Mm. Yeah. And I think as long as you're asking the questions from a position of curiosity and no judgment, I think you can ask those questions. If you've got judgment, you can have a very different outcome to the conversation. So it's really important to approach that with compassion and kindness and curiosity. Yeah. So in Chapter 10, you talk about this idea of influencing results. So I'm a believer that the leaders should deliver results through their people. Yes. So how can they, how can we increase our ability to influence? Being very clear on what the outcomes you want are. I think uh, often we want our people to do the work that we do, but they don't actually give them an end goal. So give them an end goal. What is it that you want to um, achieve by um, them doing a certain task? Uh, and focus on that. So focus on what are the what are the rules around that so if i want to achieve x then what are the components of x that i need to understand when do you want x by um how do you want to be engaged throughout that process and then how i actually go about doing it is entirely up to me so um, notwithstanding that the person who's taking on that piece of work uh, needs to feel like they have the right tools and understanding and knowledge and experience to do that and so 
it's a conversation. It's a conversation between the two of you to kind of work out, this is what I want you to do. What do you need in order to make that happen? And by the way, here are the things, these are the rules that you need to operate within. So you're looking at a little bit like a game, um, you know, a game of any, any kind of team sport where you've got the the rules of the game and there are clear do's and do nots and within that you can play your own game provided you achieve what we need to in the end which is ultimately to win the game yeah you yeah. also talk about this idea of holding yourself accountable this is one of the things that I'm not quite convinced that a lot of leaders are comfortable doing all the time sometimes they tend to uh, look for ways to not hold themselves accountable so what's your experience been around that I would agree Um, and I think that a lot of the time um, those leaders also assume a bit of a reasons mindset in that uh, they've got they've got valid enough reasons yet if it came from one of their people that wouldn't be okay so I think it's being really careful again around um, making sure what you're saying and what you're doing is the same and I think the other element is around vulnerability and actually being able to put your hand up and go I got that wrong I I shouldn't have done that Um, and and I myself am the first to put my hand up and and apologize even as a trainer just recently I said something in training that was just I shouldn't have said it I got I got carried away in the moment there was a bit of energy there was people that were agreeing with me and I just got I just got carried away and I said and I made a comment and I and I offended someone and um and my first response to that was oh explain it away explain it away give some justification and and I thought about that for a couple of seconds and I went actually you know what it was really inappropriate and I'm I'm so sorry and I shouldn't have done that and so there's an element of vulnerability that comes with this I shouldn't have said that, but I held myself accountable. And um, and so I think it is um, having the courage to call yourself on your own strategies to avoid or not do things um, and share that with your people so that they don't think you're a hypocrite because I think you risk being a hypocrite if you don't hold yourself accountable. Uh, and the other thing I will say to accountability is... Uh, and this goes back to one-on-one conversations. If you're a leader and you're having one-on-one conversations and you're leaving with an action, then you're creating more work for yourself. So I sort of put the challenge out there that um, you shouldn't leave a one-on-one conversation with an action. The person, your, your direct report should leave with the actions. I don't think you should. Because I... The, the danger is when I leave with an action, it gets put with all the other actions that I've got for all the other direct reports and suddenly a month has gone past, I haven't done any of them because I've had all these other things come through and suddenly my direct reports development and, and career progression is hanging on me as a leader and that doesn't work. And your credibility goes out the door. Your credibility goes out the door and, um, and then, you, you know, you can't hold them accountable for not achieving their results if you haven't done what you've said. So very much a two-way street. Are there any leaders or books or people that inspire you? There's lots of people that inspire me. I'm inspired by most, in fact. Um, 
the do you know I love um, Liz Wiseman? She's probably one of my favourite uh, leadership experts. Um, she talks about multipliers and diminishes, and um, and has a book called The Multiplier Effect. and And so she she talks about the concept of um, diminishers, or who are those people that don't want anyone to be better than them, and they want to take all the glory, and they sort of want to hold people back for the purpose of advancing themselves and. Um, and so there's clear diminishers and then she talks about the multipliers who are those leaders who inspire others to just be their best and learn and grow and nurture and just encourage to step outside their comfort zone and so she's got these great contrasts between diminishers and multipliers and then in the middle she's got accidental diminishers and that's my favorite part like that has me hooked every time you know she talks about the leader that's always on that you know is responding to emails at ten o'clock at night and thinking that they're doing the right thing by the team, but it's actually the team is really suffering from that. You know, if my manager is online at nine o'clock at night, is there an expectation that I be on at that time? And if I want to progress in my career, then do I have to do that? Um, there's you know, she talks about the the pace setter that uh, is wanting everybody to keep up with the leader, but the leader's going so fast that no one thinks that they can keep up and so rather than not keeping up they stop they just don't do anything at all so it's f- like fabulous okay. highly recommend it she's brilliant okay now if people want to know more about you and the work that you do where should they go my website shellyflett.com okay it's pretty easy <laughs> or linkedin so i'm very um, active on linkedin and um so happy to connect with anyone okay so any last words on leadership and in particular the dynamic leader? I think the um, dynamic leader and leadership in general is a journey um, and the dynamic leader is definitely the beginning of the journey and, um, and I think it's a good place to start uh, but it's a journey and I think enjoy the journey and don't expect to just become a great leader overnight. Um, I think even myself I'm still learning some of the things so embrace the journey and have fun laugh share play thank you for having me well on that note I was going to say (laughs) thanks so much for being on the show appreciate it Well, that wraps up episode 79 of the Synergy Leadership Podcast, another author interview episode for you. I'd like to encourage you, head on over to the Synergy Group website and engage in the conversation with us. Tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you'd like us to deliver. And if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site, leave us a review. It does really support us in building awareness of the podcast. In next week's episode, we have another great interview for you where I chat with Anna Faringa, who is a specialist in workplace mental health. It's another great interview episode. So until then, love to hear what you think and happy listening.